Mortimer, episode 13. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Of course, uh, when I was a young vixen, I enjoyed vaudeville and circuses. But now, in my fine age, I will indulge in a radio serial now and then. And this Mortimer show, it's just scandalous enough to pique my interest. Where did those kebabs come from? Mrs. Peabody had been moving a mile a minute but stopped perplexedly upon seeing the tray of food that Neville was about to carry out back. Well, how should I know? I just do what I'm told. Maybe one of them ladies made them. Mrs. Peabody did not have time to wonder whom, for her to-do list was impossibly long and time was of the essence. Just put them on the table with the rest. Have you allowed anyone in your kitchen unsupervised, darling? Pulling gardening gloves off his hands, Mr. Peabody shut the back door to the kitchen. He leaned in and kissed Mrs. Peabody's cheek. Oh, Henry, of course not. Um, I've been in here all morning. She allowed herself to melt into his arms for a moment. He'd only arrived home a week prior. His time was split between working in the gardens at the Iscariot Manor for half the year. The other half he served as head landscaper for a wealthy family up north. She sighed and then reluctantly pushed away and started pacing again. I'm sure I forgot something. Oh, there's so much to keep track of. Mr. Peabody sampled a tart from the tray on the counter. Don't fret. Everything looks perfect. Uh, What else do you want me to bring outside? Neville had returned to the kitchen for another load. The baskets of rolls on the counter and there are several pitchers of lemonade in the icebox. Those need to go on the tables outside by the fountain. Fine. Neville filled his arms and pushed his way back through the door, almost colliding with Millie. Ah, Millie, darling, um, grab that basket of rolls and follow Neville. Okay. She picked up the rolls obediently. Have you seen Mrs. Dixon? She's been in the library for hours. Mrs. Peabody shook her head. She'd been growing more and more curious, for it had been several hours since the last crash, shriek, or scream. But no, I haven't heard a peep. Oh, I do hope they're almost done. Guests are due to arrive any minute. Mrs. Dixon chose that moment to enter the kitchen. Where are the Binkleys? In the backyard. Uh, Jeb's talking with George. He arrived early with the lawn chairs. He tried to sell him tobacco, but George don't smoke, Millie announced. Mrs. Peabody shot Millie a look. Weren't you bringing the rolls to Neville? "'Okay,' Millie sighed as she slumped obediently out through the kitchen doors. "'Elizabeth, how did the training go?' Mrs. Peabody checked the stovetop. She was boiling water for the blanching of some fresh vine tomatoes. "'We will just have to see.' Mrs. Dixon straightened her apron and surveyed the kitchen with approval. "'Has the ice cream arrived?' "'No, not yet.' "'Henry, will you be sticking around?' "'Wouldn't miss it.' Mr. Peabody tossed another tart into his mouth. Also, keep an eye out for the ice cream truck. 
The owner of the Georgetown parlour told me himself that they would be delivering our ice cream no later than four o'clock today. Ah, Georgetown parlour. <laughs> ice cream and soda fountain. Mr. Peabody was impressed. That place has the best ice cream in the South. Their factory makes the city smell like chocolate. Mrs. Peabody began to blanch the tomatoes. That's right, Mrs. Dixon swelled with pride. Only the best for our Martima. Neville returned to the kitchen to get the rest of the lemonade as instructed. Neville, Mrs. Dixon hurried to his side, suddenly remembering one extremely important detail. How's the table? Perfect. Fine. Neville did not meet Mrs. Dixon's gaze. What does perfect, fine mean exactly? It means that the table is assembled, decorated, and ready for admirers. Neville was being sarcastic, but Mrs. Dixon did not mind. The relief this gave her caused Mrs. Dixon to beam with pride. You were able to restore the original table? Something like that. Neville bumped the icebox closed with his hip. If you will excuse me. Wonderful. Oh, oh and Neville, Mrs. Dixon called after him. When you've delivered the lemonade, please take your station at the front entrance. The doorbell chimed, causing Mrs. Dixon's heart to jump into her throat. Millie rushed into the kitchen. Our first guest has arrived. Millie, come here. I have something very important to speak with you about. Mrs. Dixon grasped Millie's small arm and guided her to the corner of the kitchen. Then, in a conspiratorial whisper, she proceeded to tell the young maid of her plan. You must do exactly as I tell you. Now listen to me carefully. First is the matter of all those... To whom it may concern. It has come to my attention that a very curious set of circumstances has taken place in regards to ownership and managerial supervision of the Centennial shipping line. This information was, of course, quite shocking, as Mr. Iscariot, upon founding the company, promised that an Iscariot would always run it, thusly ensuring that the founding values of the company would be retained in the inevitable event that ownership transferred. This promise had garnered respect from investors and business partners alike. It provided a foundation upon which the Centennial shipping line bases its international acclaim. Upon the tragic passing of Mr. Iscariot, the board of directors, in an effort to follow this directive, had assured the shipping community that the young Mr. Iscariot was predominantly and sufficiently managing the business. Of course, this was to be in part assisted and guided under the support of Mr. Herberger Wolfenstein, as the competency curve would demand a period of tutorship. However, Upon receiving the information that Mr. Iscariot is not, in fact, running the company, I conducted a preliminary investigation. My sources have come back, confirming the rumour to be true. This deviation on the part of the Centennial shipping line calls into question the economic and financial status of the company. For an unannounced change from the original promise will most assuredly raise concerns among the investors and partners alike. Given my experience with a superior integrity and upstanding attention to communication and honesty in all its forms, my conclusion is that the Centennial shipping line shall soon be bankrupt. I do wish to assure you, first of all, that I do hold this private information with the highest respect. 
I have not shared these facts with anyone, and would, however, rather wish to extend a solution to the board regarding the degraded state of the company. Being in a position of financial viability, as well as your number one competition, the Longhorn Shipping Yard is willing to extend you an offer to purchase the Centennial Shipping Line. This transaction would most assuredly allay any damage done by the managerial switch in the eyes of your investors, thus retaining the business and assuring board pensions. A transfer of ownership and dissolving of the company will also save the company's honour should the investors find out about the present violation of the contractual promise that the company always is run in its natural state by an Iscariot. For purposes of discussing this further, my contact information is provided below. I look forward to speaking to the board at your earliest convenience. With highest respect, Mr. Longhorn, CEO and President of the Longhorn Shipping Yard. Mr. Arbright, Mrs. Arbright, how do you do? Mrs. Dixon refilled the lemonade glasses belonging to the estate's barrister and his wife. Mrs. Dixon, you have outdone yourself. Mrs. Albright surveyed the decor with approval. My dear niece is quite undone. Mrs. Dixon glanced across the manicured lawn at the young lady, who was standing amongst a group of young women by the punch table. I am delighted that you could come, though I confess I did not know you had a niece. She's a second niece. Mr. Albright bristled beneath his tweed jacket. "'We wouldn't miss it for the world, would we, darling?' "'Mrs. Albright put her hand on her husband's arm. "'To come to Mortimer's coming-out party. "'Why, this is the biggest event of the season. "'I hope you enjoy yourself. "'Mrs. Peabody has prepared an elaborate spread.' "'By the way, Mrs. Dixon, this was on your front stoop when we arrived.' "'Mr. Albright revealed a small white letter.' Mrs. Dixon felt her stomach hit the floor. What well, was it? She tried to suppress the tremble in her voice. Indeed, you should remind your butler to take better care when he retrieves the mail. Mrs. Dixon was embarrassed by the man's tone. She flushed deep red and tucked the letter into her apron pocket. Thank you, and I will. Mrs. Dixon, Mrs. Albright leaned forward. Just between us girls, I must know. Mrs. Dixon swallowed down impatience, the foreboding letter burning a hole in her pocket. Yes? What has gotten into Mortimer? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you know better than anyone else. Mrs. Albright's voice rose as it often did when she became particularly excited about a topic. I heard just one week ago he... If you will excuse me. Mrs. Dixon interrupted, turning toward a man who was passing by. Mr. Scrodinger. How are you this fine evening? How's your cat? Mrs. Albright pouted and crossed her arms. Maybe Mrs. Dixon was not going to be any fun, but she was not completely discouraged. She sat back in her chair, eyes and ears peeled for any juicy bits of interest. I declare, the weather is quite fine, boomed a deep baritone voice from the doorway of the mansion. Lily Lou felt her pulse quicken, and she shot a look over her shoulder to see Mortimer step into the yard. He looked dashing, dressed in a black tux with a spotless white cummerbund and ivory bow tie. A red rose was pinned to his left lapel, and to her shock 
he was not wearing his captain's hat. Instead, a voluptuous mane of hair was greased fashionably back and away from his face. His moustache and beard had been trimmed and combed. The Republicans have done quite well this season. Harding and his cabinet have stimulated economic growth, and I'm making 25% more this year than last. Lilu's father spoke to a captive audience of business affiliates. Lilu forced herself to turn away from Mortimer and focus on her party's conversation. Economic prosperity is on the rise, Mrs. Longhorn gave her son a knowing look. I'm quite pleased with my late husband's company, and I do expect that some quite fortuitous advances are on the horizon. Yes. Oh, that reminds me. Mr. Brennard lifted his glass to Mr. Longhorn. Congratulations on the safari. Why, thank you. They tapped the glasses. The ship set sail at dawn. That's wonderful, darling. You work so hard, you deserve a little celebration. Isn't that right, Lily Lou? Mrs. Longhorn glanced at her daughter encouragingly. Aren't you proud of your father? Yes, Lily Lou forced herself to smile. She looked through her eyelashes at Herbert, who had been quite uncharacteristically aloof for the past few days. Herbert, who had, until recently, pulled out all the stops to woo her and win her affection. Yet Herbert seemed to have had a change in perspective, and to Lily's absolute horror, he had brought another woman to Mortimer's coming-out party. "'We have a lot to be thankful for,' Herbert's father, Mr. Brennard, added. "'Banking is through the roof. Industry is unstoppable.' "'That's right,' Herbert took a drink of lemonade. "'Investments are up three percent, and we've had very few closures. Though I have to say that Forbes character has got something up his sleeve.' Helen, who was Herbert's date, was not involved in the conversation at this moment, but instead had found a group of women to speak with by the punch table. Lily Lou let her gaze wander to where Helen stood, looking absolutely stunning. She noticed an unfamiliar young man with red hair approach the ladies. Several of the girls appeared quite sceptical at first, but within moments they all seemed to warm up to him. "'Can I offer you a kebab?' The mansion's maid appeared by Lily Lou's mother's side. Why, thank you, miss. Lily Lou shook her head as Millie held the tray before her. Mr. Longhorn and Herbert each took two and continued on in their conversation. Watching the maid dart amongst the guests with her tray of meat, Lily Lou wondered if the maid liked working for the Iscariots. She wondered what it was like to actually live with Mortimer. Lily Lou sighed. Kebab? Millie held the silver platter out to a group of young women who were drinking punch around a white table near where the band, dressed in all white, played a pleasant jazz tune. Sure. A rosy-cheeked blonde took a kebab and bit into the succulent meat before turning back to her friends. I heard that he assaulted an old man at the park. Can you believe it? The girls gasped in disapproval. How despicable! I was there, Millie announced, gaining the attention of the wealthy young women. They all turned to her with reserved curiosity. Really? Despite being addressed by a maid, the brunette in a pale blue dress did not conceal her interest. Yeah, I saw the whole thing. Millie leaned in toward them. They looked left and right as if to check for eavesdroppers. But it's a secret. We won't tell us all. Well, you see, Millie began, the man was a retired rich captain. He came to the dock to visit the place where he'd had his first commission, aboard the SS Angelica. Oh, what happened? 
three robbers knew about this captain. They'd been following him from Philadelphia all the way to Georgetown. They waited until they knew the captain was vulnerable, reflecting on his career and grieving for his lost youth. Millie waved her hand casually, but then she leaned down even further. At that moment, they attacked. Oh, no, yes, Millie nodded gravely. But Mr. Iscariot, he spends a lot of time at the dock, drawing and contemplating life. Well, he heard a cry and immediately ran to the man's assistant. He did not attack the captain like you heard. He actually fought off the three robbers. Oh, my! The blonde put her hand to her face. How brave! The story had to be changed to protect the captain's privacy, of course. Oh! I can't imagine how frightened the captain must have been. Millie grinned at her success before flouncing off to another group of young ladies. In the kitchen, Mrs. Dixon stared fearfully at the letter. Neville had come in for another pitcher of punch and saw her standing alone in the corner, looking down at a piece of paper in her hands. What are you reading? Neville, oh, don't sneak up on me like that. You scared me half to death. More guests have arrived. He stopped, noticing Mrs. Dixon's stricken look. "'What's the matter?' "'Then, with realisation, "'Did another letter come?' "'Mrs. Dixon nodded "'and allowed him to take it from her. "'That bastard!' "'Neville shot out as he read the demands. "'One thousand dollars or "'he'll tell everyone about Mrs. Ascariot. "'How does he know?' "'Oh, we've worked so hard to keep it a secret. "'But, you know, she has escaped a number of times.' Why, half a dozen people at least saw her the time she wandered to the barber shop in her undergarments looking for a Eugene. It's too much money, Neville shook his head. If he says anything, it won't matter in the long run. But he's also threatened to hurt Mortimer. Oh, he wouldn't risk doing something so foolish. He claims he's the one who killed Mr. Ascariot. That horn washerwoman did it. He's lying to make us fear him. We can't risk it, Neville. We must take this matter to those who are equipped to deal with a crime of this sort. It was never supposed to be our responsibility to make decisions like this. But because of Mrs. Ascariot's illness, we have no choice. Do you suggest that we do nothing and, and risk our reputations, Mortimer's life? Have you not considered that a story of this calibre would end up being published in all the papers? It would only give the idea to copycats. Before we knew it, we would be receiving dozens of letters demanding money. Mrs. Dixon shook her head. No, we can't tell anyone. To comply is the only way to guarantee we'll be safe. Elizabeth, the Bartholomews have arrived. Mrs. Peabody stuck her head in the kitchen door. Is everything all right? Of course it is. The party is a smashing success so far. Mrs. Dixon gave her friend her most chipper smile. I shall be right out. Satisfied, Mrs. Peabody disappeared again, and Mrs. Dixon focused back on Neville. Neville, you will speak to Mr. Arbright in private before he leaves. What excuse shall I give him this time? Mrs. Dixon bit her lip, unaccustomed to coming up with lies. Oh, make something up. Uh, tell him the master requests the fund for a project he is working on. Well, I will continue to insist that we call the authorities, Elizabeth. This can't go on forever. Mrs. Dixon swallowed back her fear. Perhaps he was right, but her gut told her that this had gotten too far out of hand and that it was too late to change course. She turned to leave through the kitchen door. And Neville, 
Do not say anything to Falinda. I shouldn't want her to worry on such a happy day. John Adams Iscariot took another hit from his flask and glowered across the lawn at the maid, gossiping with the group of girls. As soon as he was running the manor, he'd see to her lack of efficiency. She could have served one hundred more people in the amount of time she'd spent lollygagging with those girls. His gaze shifted over to Mortimer, who quite shockingly looked like an actual gentleman. He'd also not managed to offend anyone in the hour that John had been at the party. He looked down at his expensive gold-encrusted pocket watch. It was only a matter of time, for Mr. Bartholomew, his wife and daughter, had just arrived. The last time Mortimer had encountered them, he had corned a fairly insulting name. John leaned back in his chair and took another drink. Mr. Bartholomew, I'm so glad you made it. I do hope that your dear squire will behave in a civilised manner this evening. The older gentleman straightened his tie in indignation. Mrs. Dixon held her breath and took a step away from the man's cavernous mouth. Adolescence is a trying time, you know. I assure you, Mortimer has quite changed since you two last spoke. Mrs. Dixon turned to the maid who had just approached the newcomers. Milly dear, can you get our guest some lemonade? I prefer whiskey. Mr. Bartholomew's beady eyes scanned the crowd dubiously. "'Darling,' his wife elbowed him, "'lemonade is fine. Oh, "'What was that pink liquid I saw?' "'Mrs. Peabody's punch.' "'Oh, that sounds lovely,' Mrs. Bartholomew said. "'Coming up.' Millie zipped away through the crowd. "'Hilda,' Mrs. Dixon addressed the Bartholomew's daughter, "'do tell me what you've been up to.' The portly young woman dragged the back of her hand across her nose before pushing her spectacles farther up the bridge. Etymology. What is that? Mrs. Dixon was not convinced she wanted to know the answer. <laughs> the, the study of bugs, uh, Mrs. Bartholomew offered with an awkward laugh. They are not bugs, mother. They are insects. Here's your punch. Mrs. Dixon sighed in relief at Millie's well-timed interruption. Thank you, dear. Mrs. Bartholomew took a greedy gulp from her glass. Mrs. Dixon. Neville was by her side, his voice urgent. Mrs. Peabody needs you in the kitchen. Mrs. Dixon smiled politely at her guests. If you will excuse me. Millie remained by the trio, a smile on her face. Did you hear about how Mortimer saved a nun who passed out in the post office the other day? The sound of screaming poured through the kitchen door as Mrs. Dixon and Neville entered. For Linda, Bobby Sue, what is going on here? Mrs. Peabody had a spatula in her hand and had been in the process of chasing Bobby Sue with it. This crazed woman is trying to beat the heavens out of me, Bobby Sue wailed. What's all this noise about? Mr. Peabody burst in from the servant's entrance. He was wearing a coal-coloured tuxedo and was tying his bow tie as he entered the room. He looked about quizzically as his wife ran to him and burst into tears. Did I hear a baby? Mrs. Iscariot entered the kitchen through the main entrance. What is she doing downstairs? Neville urged her into the kitchen and pushed the door quickly closed before anyone saw her. She's wearing her nightgown. Is it Marty? He needs his bottle. Mrs. Iscariot wandered to the trash receptacle and opened the lid. Neville, take her upstairs right away. Dear Mrs. Iscariot, that is the trash can. Neville urged her away from the rubbish. I've got to find a collar for the new puppy. Don't you hit me with that. Bobby Sue pointed at Mrs. Peabody, who was waving the spatula with one hand and holding fiercely onto her husband's arm with the other. 
Neville spoke in soothing tones and urged Mrs. Iscariot from the kitchen through the back door that led around to the servants' quarters and away from where the guests were milling about. Mrs. Dixon turned to the women. "'Now, you two, tell me what this is all about. "'She has disgraced my kitchen. "'I have not. "'You brought a dead animal into here. Well, "'What do you suppose that chicken was that you cooked for supper? "'Alive?' Mrs. Dixon considered. "'Bobby Sue had a point there.' "'My chicken came from the market, not the side of the road.' "'Quiet!' Mrs. Dixon called above the women's shrieks. "'Give me that spatula!' Mrs. Dixon yanked the foreboding weapon away from the cook. "'Felinda, you go first. "'You know how I was unsure about where the kebabs came from? "'Well, turns out that they were made from the dead possum Percy dragged into the house. "'You made Ricky into kebabs?' Mrs. Dixon turned to Bobby Sue. "'And they're a big hit, too!' Bobby Sue's face shone with enthusiasm. I heard someone say they were the tastiest kebabs they'd ever tasted. Mrs. Dixon pressed her fingers into her eyes. Oh, I can't handle this right now. Uh, let's just bring in all the remaining kebabs and speak no more of this incident. Well, there's just one wee little problem with that. Bobby Sue peered sheepishly at Mrs. Dixon. What's that? They're all gone. Mrs. Dixon was speechless. Bobby Sue shrugged, a smile at her lips. Well, they were so popular, you know. Everyone, well, they ate them all up. Mrs. Dixon was silent for a moment as the words sank in. She had just fed the richest, most austere people in Georgetown and the surrounding area roadkill. She, Mrs. Dixon, the nanny with class, had fed all of her guests, the people she had brought in to woo so that one lucky lady could marry her squire. She had fed them dead possum. Not just any dead possum, but a dead possum named Ricky. Orange yawned and shifted in the seat of the patrol vehicle. He'd been sitting at the corner of Third and Elm for three hours now and hadn't seen a single person. During this time, however, Orange had successfully fallen asleep half a dozen times and had lost almost all feeling in his buttocks. It was the small accomplishments in life that mattered most. Unfortunately, this was likely to be Orange's only assignment for the foreseeable future. After his atrocious job of being an interrogator to that ridiculous Iscariot fellow, who then wound up robbing a post office the same day he had been released, Orange's superintendent had been so outraged that instead of firing the young and aspiring officer, he'd reassigned Orange to the most loathsome duty given to a police officer, nabbing nocturnal lawbreakers. He was to keep a lookout for anyone that was driving recklessly, behaving recklessly, or anything else questionable or suspicious, especially recklessly questionable or suspicious. His supervisor was a thorough man. The evening shift was the worst shift, and the car he'd been given was slower than a horse and buggy. Orange was convinced that the seats were made out of straw. He stretched again, and then a pair of headlights appeared coming up from the dock. His heart skipped a hopeful beat. Now what do we do here? Orange shifted in his seat and narrowed his eyes. The sun was setting, and John Adams was drunk. From his spot on the edge of the lawn, he scowled at the happy guests dining amongst the twinkling garden lights. The atmosphere was filled with the aroma of lavender, spices and freshly cut grass. But John could care less. He had more important things to think about. For starters, 
He'd still not had the opportunity to speak more with the elder Mrs. Longhorn. He had been absolutely sure that she would be interested in sharing some of her trade secrets with him. He'd put on all his best moves. He'd invited her out to dinner. He'd ordered a black car, brought her flowers, paid for a steak dinner, and wooed her with intelligent conversation. When he'd invited her to the party tonight, he had all but assumed that she would be spending it with him, plotting how he could take over both the Centennial shipping line and Longhorn shipping. He tipped his flask up, and the last drop fell onto his tongue. He'd have to see about getting more. The Iscariots had locked up their wine cellar since the Prohibition, but John knew where the key was. He did not consider the occasional visit trespassing. He was family, after all. John pushed up from the table and started across the lawn. How do you do? A redhead stopped by his side. Don't I know you? John squinted in the darkening light. I'm Percy. John was suspicious. The young man had red hair like he remembered his sister-in-law's nephew Percy having, but this gentleman did not fit the bill of backcountry moron. The Percy he had met years ago was a hillbilly, not a refined man wearing a tux. Prove it. I assure you, good sir, I'll be telling the truth. Percy flinched at his error while speaking. Good thing Mrs. Dixon didn't overhear him, or he'd be knee-deep in ice. Come with me, John said, and he led the boy across the lawn. Then, just before the house, he cut left and went into a little stone hut. Opening the door, he welcomed himself inside. Uh, where are we going? The wine cellar. This caught the young man's interest. Wine? This party's drab. Let's say we spice it up a bit. John took the key off the hinge that was hidden alongside the door and unlocked it. Silently, he replaced the key and moved quickly down the wooden steps into the underground room. The ceilings were fairly low, and the floor was cool and made of dirt. Shelves upon shelves of bottles lined the walls, and wooden racks were set up to make aisles through the middle of the room. "'What's all this?' Percy's eyes widened with awe. "'This, my man, is the vodka shelf. Then we have whiskies, tequila, scotch, bourbon, and gin. The periphery there and there is lined with white and red. What about beer?' "'Doesn't keep.' John wandered down the gin aisle. His brother had always had a taste for liquor. It was no wonder he was dead. Gerard Iscariot had been a certifiable drunk. If that explosion hadn't killed him, booze would have. John sniffed with condescension and pulled a lovely cobalt blue glass bottle off the shelf. This'll do. What's that? Percy approached him curiously. Gin. Blends with most everything. You can hardly taste it. It looks like water. Good gin does. John agreed, opening the bottle. Percy felt a thrill as he watched the man expertly pour the alcohol into a flask. Here you go. John handed Percy the bottle. Take a drink. You sure? Percy looked behind him, convinced that at any moment Mrs. Dixon would pop out from around a corner. My mama forbids drinking of any sort. Says her par was a drunk. You never had booze on the farm? John was genuinely surprised. Percy shook his head. Don't tell me that a young, adventurous man such as yourself never nipped the bottle. I get myself into trouble, don't get me wrong, but I ain't gonna be a drunk like my grandpa. Sides, ain't it illegal? John grinned. Oh, I'm not suggesting you get drunk. Just try a taste. Seeing as he'd already endured enough torture in school to last a lifetime, Percy felt that he deserved a little moment of indulgence. 
Having a drink wasn't the same thing as being drunk, or even making a habit of drinking. He accepted the bottle, and before he could talk himself out of it, Percy took a drink. Oh, it doesn't taste like water. <coughs> Percy spluttered and coughed. John laughed and slapped a hand across the younger man's back. That'll put some hair on your chest. Oh, it's disgusting. It'll go better with some punch. John winked in good humour, satisfied with his mission of a refill. He started up the stairs. You coming? Percy looked at the bottle that remained in his hand. What do I do with this? Don't ask me. I had nothing to do with this whole little escapade. John stopped at the top of the stairs, grinning odiously. But you can call me your guardian angel for giving you the key to making this party tolerable. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.